to the show today. We have on the podcast the author of the new book, The Story of You, Ian Cron. Ian's been on the podcast a bunch of times, and if you don't know who he is, you are in for an absolute treat because Ian is a jack of many traits. He does a lot of stuff. He's obviously an author. He's an Episcopal priest. He is a musician. He is uh, an Enneagram teacher. He is the host of a podcast. He does a lot of stuff. And uh, the conversation here was deeply meaningful to me. And one of the things we try to do with the podcast is help you navigate faith in the modern world. And one of the best ways for you to navigate faith in the modern world is for you to navigate the depths of your own soul. And his new book is a great resource for you to do that. On the podcast, we have we have a couple of Oprah moments. Like it gets real, stuff gets real up in here. And uh, hopefully, as you entertain and connect with this material, you'll have the same experience. And uh, so, without further ado, Ian and I doing the thing right now. Great. Share it or something like that. But I don't do YouTube. Do you do YouTube? Like I feel like everyone's doing YouTube these days. I mean, we just post them up, uh, and some people listen that way. You know, it's like. Joe Rogan and other people, tons of people yeah. just, they just listen on their, I don't know what, they're they just do. listening yeah, on when I think of When I think of people who are like Joe Rogan, first thing that comes to mind is my guest today, Ian Cron. <laughs> Ian, welcome back to the show. <laughs> are we going to smoke pot and like talk about, yeah. all right, yes. awesome. I'll, if if I get the bank account of Elon Musk and we are in California, then we can have that conversation, but awesome. um, alas. I can't, I can't wait. Alas, I don't have that bank account just yet. Uh, nevertheless, Ian, welcome back uh, to the podcast. I don't know if you remember this, but you were like one of the first guests that I didn't really know who I got to come on my podcast. And it was like, I, I remember being like, like super nervous and like, oh my goodness, uh, what do I say and all that stuff. So uh, that was many years ago. It was like eight years ago, I think. Gosh, probably. And yeah. you were a great help when we were starting Typology. So... It's, yeah. uh, it's good to circle back and connect. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And to talk about the new book, uh, The Story of You. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity to talk about stories. And yeah. I want to talk about the stories that we write for ourselves. And uh, y- you tell a story of your sponsor, a guy named Jack, who was like 75. Is that right? Yeah, roughly. And you were 27. You had just shared your story for the first time. You were terrified of doing it. Which, at 27, like, did you, had, had you already started your church in Greenwich at that time? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I was, uh, that wasn't for another 15 years. Okay. So you were terrified of speaking in front of this group, a couple hundred people, and you tell your story, you did a great job, according to Jack, and then afterwards he asked you this question, which I feel like everyone at some point needs to have someone ask him this question. Can you tell us what that question was? Yeah, you know, I, sh- I, sh- I, say- I shared a story that, uh, of my childhood, h- how I found myself in that 12-step recovery community. And at the end of it, I guess it was so sad and, and you know, misperceived that, that Jack turned to me and he said, Ian, have you ever wondered if you're living in the wrong story? And I, I remember mm. thinking, holy smokes, that- that's an amazing question. And it's one that I carried with me for decades and i've never written about it uh until now yeah it's in the book you say that the original story you were living was uh was the lost boy Mm. but through some work you became the redeemed man yes two different stories same person but it became a different story what's the impact of living as um like 
the first story? The, I, do we call it like the false self? Is that what like the false story would be? Is that a how would you describe that? Yeah, the the phrase I use is a broken story. Mm-hmm. All of us craft narratives or stories in childhood that we end up telling ourselves and others about who we are and how we think the world works. Uh, mm-hmm. Those stories are based on you know. Uh, internalized messages, uh, false beliefs, uh, and unfortunately, though we carry or drag those childhood stories into adulthood where they begin to really wreak havoc on our lives. Uh, they served a, pers- a purpose when you were a little kid. You know, they gave you a coherent sense of yourself in the world. But in adulthood, they, uh, the, the fruit of them is really, really negative. And the, but the good news is, is that uh, we have the agency, we have the freedom, we have the obligation, and we have the joy of being able to rewrite uh, a new story uh, for ourselves that is more accurate and more life-giving. Mm-hmm. So these broken stories that we live would you say that like they serve a purpose, like in the same way that the false self hips, helps us to get going in life? Like we need to have some coherent understanding, even if they are broken, or or, or are they all just like um, dysfunctional for us? Well, uh, initially, I'd say that they serve a purpose, not unlike you know the the, the false self, which is a different topic, but related. Yeah. The, you know, the false self is necessary. Right. It, it protects you. It helps you get your needs met. Um, and unfortunately, lots of people n- n- never uh, abandon or escape the false self and they drag it with them through their whole lives. And it's very self-limiting and, and can cause a lot of problems in the same way. The these false broken stories that we craft in childhood, um, we we needed them. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we really yeah, needed yeah, yeah. them. Uh, and, uh, but in adulthood, we don't. In fact, they hurt us. And, you know, Carl Jung has a great quote, and I'm going to bastardize it. But it's, you know, essentially this message. What helps you in the morning of life yeah. will screw you in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so we have to really think about what is the story I'm telling myself and others about who I am and about how the world works. And is it true? And, you know, there's a great quote in the book from the, I think he's a children's author, Mo Willems. He's, he's quite well known. And he, he has this great quote. He says, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, leave. Yeah. And I'm like, that, that's kind of a summary of the book in some ways, uh, you know, and then it, the book explores, well, how do you leave? Yeah. You tell a story about Donald Miller who um, he was living a story he didn't like. And so he decided, I just need to change my story. And part of that was uh, involving his own like physical health. There's another Donald Miller story. I forget which book he tells it in, but there's a friend of his whose daughter is making just some less than ideal choices as a teenager. And he realizes the problem with this teenage daughter is that she's not living a good story. And so they do something like we're going to build an orphanage at some uh, part of the world that uh, has less resources than us. And his daughter changes her life because she starts to live a better story. Very similar to the story you tell about Donald telling his story, but it's hard to like figure out like, what story am I living? Like what's going on inside of me? I've been doing some thinking since I read the book about the story that I was living, especially when I was younger. And so I I leave 
high school early at, at the age of 16. And so I go to college as a 16 year old. Um, earlier I was like one of, um, like I'm not saying there weren't Christians in my high school, but it, it wasn't common. Like it wasn't in the South. It wasn't like where, you know, everyone's going to young life and stuff. And I, I realized a lot of my identity was like being different from people. Like, oh, you're the one Christian guy, and so you do certain things that are different because you don't drink and you don't cuss and all the stuff that, uh, you know, a good Christian kid does when they're 16. I go to college when I'm 16. I'm different from everyone else. And in the time, I didn't realize, but a lot of my identity was being set apart from other people. But I, I didn't realize that. I don't see that until many years later. Is there a way that you sh- we can be doing that in the moment that, that doesn't require the, the luxury of, like, hindsight? Um, yeah, I, I think everybody uh, at any point in their life and probably multiple points in their lives, right, uh, can engage in self-reflection and move through uh, some exercises that would help them to uh, see their story, to own their story, to awaken to those times when the story has taken the old story has taken hold again. And mm-hmm. then to move through a process of rewriting a story in a very conscious way, right? Uh, a very yeah. organized way and say, you know, this is the story that in which I want to live my life. And obviously, you know, in the book, I, I use the Enneagram as kind of a really helpful tool because I think each of the nine types are not only personality styles, but they're stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and how we think the mm-hmm. world works. And again, those stories helped you as a little person. But they won't help you as an adult. They'll hurt you. And the reason I know that all nine of those stories are broken is because the underlying premise of each of them is in direct opposition to the gospel. Hmm. So as a one, the improver used to be called the perfectionist. Their old story is based on the underlying premise that the world um, values and loves good people and punishes bad people. And that in order to get your needs met, you have to perfect yourself, others in the world. Well, where in the gospel does it say that in order to be loved, you must be perfect and never make mistakes? Yeah. And uh, where, where does it, for the two, the helper, uh, who sees a world in which you have to give to get, and that they have to meet the needs of, of everyone else in order to be loved, where does it say that in the gospel? And I could, of course, go through all nine types, but... Until you actually begin to exhume and interrogate the underlying premise of your story, it will continue to govern your life from the shadows and make a mess. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, what is it? Whose line is it? Uh, As long as the, like we call it fate, like the, uh, what is the line? It's Carl Um, Jung. It's Carl Jung. Yeah, Carl Jung. Yeah, yeah, as long as we, uh, I just botched it. Anyway, but yeah, as long as we ignore what's underneath the surface, we'll, it'll dictate who we are and we'll call it fate and our destiny and this is what we're stuck to do. So like we have to do that. But like I feel like your example of Jack stops you and says, hey, I don't think you're living a, a good story. And for the people who haven't bought your book and don't have that nice acronym of SOAR, which they can use to see, to own, to awaken and rewrite, it's kind of like hard to have that level of self-awareness to see that you're living a faulty story. So it requires like an attention to detail, attention to like your inner life that I don't know if we always stop and pause and do that. Well, that's why I wrote the book, brother, (laughs) because I think, I don't think, I don't think people do do it. And I don't think they recognize how they don't recognize the story. There's a, there's a quote in the book that I love. And that is 
that no prison is more secure than the one you don't yeah. know you're in. And yeah, I like that. You know, so uh, most of us go through life unconsciously living in these stories. And until we uh, unearth them and begin to challenge them and to move through a process of rewriting them, uh, we're going to we're going to remain imprisoned by them. And, you know, obviously what the book tries to do is through the lens of the Enneagram, help people uh, rewrite to see and rewrite those stories. Now. You don't actually need to know the Enneagram before you read this book. You know what I mean? Like, like you yeah. could read this book and just say, well, I read all nine types and I found my story. I read all nine stories and, and I can see what mine is. And uh, I'm excited about that because you don't have to be an Enneagram fan in order to really gain a great deal from the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what are the things that you, you talk about? Obviously, the four steps, see, own, awaken, rewrite. Um, to, to see, I mean, you need to take inventory of like what actually your life is. You have to own it. You have to, uh, become alive to it and then you have to rewrite. And one of the practices that you talk about that is essential for rewriting is the practice of acting against or yeah. I, say, it, I always say it wrong. How do you say that? The fancy way to say it? Oh, you know, I've heard multiple ways of Jerry Contra, a Gary Contra, but it's, yeah, it's a term that. Uh, was first coined by uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola hundreds of years ago. And the idea of it is that we have the capacity to see our self-limiting patterns and stories. And one of the ways that we can begin to unwind and rewrite them is by actually moving against our old patterns, the old predictable habitual patterns of the old story so, for example, I'm an Enneagram 4, and one of the things we struggle with is envy and comparing ourselves to others, right? Uh, and I've learned through the process of rewriting my story how to know when that old pattern is awakening in me and, you know, and beginning to take over. And I'm mm-hmm. able to go in the moment, all right, Ian, do you really want to live in that old story, that childhood story? Or do you want to move into an adult story where you no longer have to do that? Mm-hmm. And yeah, when you work against those passions, like that's where like the development and the growth happens. So as someone who is a seven, like gluttony is the passion that I have or the, you know, the primal sin or whatever you want to call it. Um, and for me to work against that, the, the salvation that I experienced, little, little less salvation is when I work against gluttony, I experience sobriety. Which again, like that doesn't come naturally. Everything for me is like, I want more and more and more and more. And how do we trust that moving against the practice that we've done for so long is actually going to be the place that we find deliverance that we need? Like, it it seems like so contrary to what we've been doing and the story we've been living for so long. Like, how do we like trust in that? Well, you know, I think, I think the journey, you have to be playful. You, You have to be curious uh, you have to have uh, a beginner's mind and you have to be willing to experiment, right? Uh, you know, sobriety, you know, is a, the virtue of the, of the seven. That's where the seven really kind of wants to develop this sort of posture, this inner posture of being in the present moment, uh, of not falling into this gluttonous kind of, I need more adventure. I need more spontaneity. I need more humor. I need more movement. I need, to, I need more future-oriented thinking. I need more stimulating ideas, new things to do. Um, that all sounds terrible to me, what you're describing, by the way. <laughs> That's well, awful. Yeah, I bet. Anyway, um, you know, 
So sobriety is just one piece of the, I think, the, of the virtue, right? Uh, there are lots of other tasks that I think the seven has to do to move into that space of healing and wholeness and into a better story. You know, for example, yeah. you know, as a seven on the Enneagram, the underlying premise of your story is if I get stuck in painful feelings or thoughts or circumstances, no one will be there to support me and help me get out of them or endure them. So therefore, I have to keep stuffing my mouth in my life with more future-oriented, fun, unlimited possibilities. And, and, and actually, in your worst place, Luke, uh, with toxic positivity. And this, so part of the journey would be, okay, so what are the underlying beliefs that I picked up as a little person that helped me craft a story based around that belief, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. so the, again, there's this process to move through. And I try to make it as simple as possible. Um, but of course, you know, it's going to require, and this would be natural for you, like, like to say, okay, there's no, there is an outcome. But the outcome, we arrive at it through, uh, you know, uh, repeated uh, attempts and failures and just being curious and playful uh, as we go along to uh, find the new story. It takes a, it takes a little work. There's, you know this. There are yeah. no hacks in the spiritual life. There just there are no hacks. And mm -hmm. the, which is why so many books, I think, are so disillusioned. There's so much disillusionment in them, right? Um, the, the journey is through, not around. And most books want to take you around the problem, not through it. Uh, and yeah. I, hope, I hope this book is honest and says, nope, we're going to have to go through it, and, uh, but it'll be worth it. No, I mean, that's definitely how, how I felt reading it. Like, that's, that's what I felt like you were communicating. I like the idea of curiosity. I've heard elsewhere someone say that, the opposite of curiosity is cynicism. Mm. It's cynical because you feel like you know everything, you got it all figured out. But curiosity says, like, there's other stories out there that I can live into, and I've got to have the mentality of, like, I'm a beginner. I can, I can be a novice in this facet of my life and trust that I can grow into something. Mm -hmm. But it's weird, like, when you try to be curious and try to explore different parts of you, especially the seven, which means you have to explore, like, the other half, which is the not-so-fun half, people aren't used to it. And people don't always receive it well. I posted something not too long ago in which it was uh, 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 it, it was I didn't explain what it was, but like the post actually was uh, my family had uh, spread the ashes of my mom, and so like I posted a picture about like my daughter and I were like doing something, but like I didn't explain the backstory for it. But the post reflected maybe uh, you know a less than chipper sentiment because it just that's where it was, and like someone commented or messaged me said hey you seem like you're kind of melancholy and i was like no i'm just like trying to do something that doesn't come natural to me and like be be in another phase of like part of life that um maybe i don't naturally want to go to or maybe 10 years ago i wouldn't have and so it, it seems like when you're trying to be like curious about other experiences of life that you haven't like lived into or other part of stories like e the people around you as well aren't really sure what to do with it well is that fair Oh, yeah. You know, it's uh, have you ever seen a Calder mobile? It, it's I, a, I don't it, even know what those words are. <laughs> so you've seen one. It's sort of mid-century. It's a mid-century piece of art. It, it, it's like it hangs from a wire on the ceiling and it, it has all these sort of crossbars, little wires. And there's like squares or circles on the end of them. And they kind of, you know, in the wind, they might bounce around a little bit. You know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? 
Okay. And, and uh, you know, that's a little bit like family systems or the systems of friendships that we have. The moment you touch one of those things on the mobile, the whole thing starts jumping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, but what that mobile wants, according to the laws of physics, is to go back to stillness. And so what will happen is all the other pieces on that mobile, on the ceiling, will exert force against the one that started jumping to make it go back to what it always did in the past. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that yeah. happens in families and friend groups in churches. You know, like, for example, as a pastor, if you start getting up there and and sharing new ideas or even theological positions that you've never done in the past that begins to unsettle everybody in the room, they are going to begin to assert, uh, you know, energy at you and say, go back to who you used to be that because now we feel uncomfortable and unsettled and they'll do it unconsciously. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's or consciously, but mostly it's unconscious kind of pressure to get you back to how it used to be. And so part of leadership and part of living is to say to those people and maybe in, in, in very gentle and kind ways, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm evolving. I'm changing. I invite you to come on that journey with me. It will not always be comfortable, uh, but we can do this together and, and just trust that it will, it will end in a very fruitful place. Some will come with you. Some will not. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's spot on. Spot on. One of the things you say in the book is uh, when the fear of casting off your old, comfortable story uh, is overwhelming, to remember this line from, it's like an 18th century uh, Polish rabbi, or, or the quote we think is attributed to that person. And the line is this, the one I am becoming will catch me. Mm. I love that. Tell me what you think about that quote. Well, first of all, I think it's very moving. Um, How so? I, well, I think it's so hopeful because as yeah. we go through the journey of rewriting our life story, um, it's scary because you have to let go of the old one. And before you've completely taken hold of the new one, there's this feeling like, well, if I don't have a story, who am I? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's uns- yeah. it, it, it really uh, is um, uh, a journey of it's exciting and it's also nerve wracking because it's like, I'm just not buying into the you know what of that old story anymore. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the process of rewriting this new one. And in the meantime, in the in that in the space between the old one and the new one, I'm going to be unsettled. But don't worry, because the one you are becoming will catch you. And I, I think that's a, a beautiful idea. So if I'm trying to live into a new story, I'm trying to like work against maybe some of the, the ways that I've done life before, my internal passions that just come naturally to me. I'm working against that. I'm going a different direction. And it feels really painful in the moment. For, for a seven, it's going to feel like death to sit still, to be quiet, to have like times of contemplation and to feel things that you don't want to feel. Um, the the word is that I have faith that somehow the person that God is making me into as I lean against things that are not true and lean is the gospel, that eventually that gospel will transform me in a way that I can be caught. It's almost like you, you trust that you're going to learn how to fly once you jump off the building. It is. That's a beautiful way of, of, of putting it. And the decision to jump itself is, is heroic. Um, and mm. 
You know, the, the, the journey in the book that I describe in rewriting your new story, you know, we begin by seeing. And what that means is, you know, there's a great quote from Wendell Berry. He says, you know, if you don't know where you're from, you'll have a hard time saying where you're going. And, yeah. you know, so many of us, but particularly sevens, I will say, have a really hard time looking backwards. You're so future oriented that you have a hard time looking back and saying, where did this story come from? So let me ask you a question. Okay. Um, what trauma or pain in your early life do you think contributed to your needing to live in such a future oriented space where everything has to be positive, where everything has to be full? Like, like what are you running from? Mm. First response is I'm going to make a joke. Uh, I'm not going to do that for the sake of our friendship. Uh, second response, I'm going to tell a story about that whole concept about why I don't like this. You were teaching at our church uh, years ago, go to lunch after, and you're talking about childhood trauma. And I'm sitting in the car with my wife and Tommy and Jennifer Green, uh, who are good friends from Denton. And they say, they ask this question to me. I'm like, honestly, I don't, I, I don't really, I have problems like philosophically that we can just go back and pick a story from our childhood that causes this. Now, this might be me just reframing because I don't want to answer the question and I'm just trying to do this a different approach. Um, so philosophically, I, like I'm, I question this whole um, premise that we can go back and find one story because I feel like if I went back to my childhood, like, yeah, you would say, okay, I had a um, childhood in which my mom had chronic illness and, you know, she had Lyme disease and then a car accident that, you know, created a lot of limitations on what she could do and her availability to be present. But yeah, I mean, that's the story that you would probably tell, but... Um, Sometimes I wonder if our ability to retell the past is as accurate as it should be, or maybe it's we're telling a story in a way that dictates an outcome that we need. Does it make sense? Like I feel like I could tell that story in a way that I could get that could get me to a different number if I needed to be. Okay, well, so memory is tricky, but you know, our all all memory is emotional. And mm-hmm. um, all, all memory, the retelling of a story is as we perceive it to be real and true, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you, listen, it, some people can go back and point to a, a moment in time where perhaps a particularly traumatic event occurred that was sort of the ground zero of their future problems, okay? The, the, lots of people can do that. Maybe you can't. Okay. That's okay. I mean... Other people have what, what is what's called complex trauma, where there is just a repeating series of, you know, of of painful events, some that are connected or disconnected to one another. And in this in the sum total of all of them came an equally painful uh, and destructive uh, force in that person's life. Okay. Yeah. So for you, though, I would argue what you just described is pretty freaking significant. Okay. And you might, I'm not saying this is your story, your old story, but perhaps your old story could have been, you know, um, mom is really sick and um, it's not going to get better. Uh, This is an uncertain world. Um, I have to, in order to survive, put a positive spin on it. I might even have to play that role in the family to keep everybody's spirits up in the midst of tragedy. 
And that story worked for me as a little kid, but now as an adult, it isn't working anymore. In fact, here's an example of how it doesn't work anymore. Every time someone asks me a question like Ian just asked me, I feel this wild impulse to tell a joke, to escape those feelings and those memories. And until you face that truth and see it in that first step, you won't grow, brother. And until you practice a Jerry Contra, which I explore, and resist the temptation to do it as you did, which is very healthy, then you're not moving forward. And yeah, seeing the truth of the past and all of its terribleness and all of its wonder, right? If you Mm -hmm. don't do that, you will live disintegrated. You just, you you won't be able to, uh, the the effect of those experiences will govern your life from the shadows, whether you know it or not. So it's better, better for you to go back and uh, unearth it and begin the process of rewriting that story so that you can be who you are versus who you needed to be. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I had a therapist maybe a decade ago tell me to read the book, uh, Adult Children, of alcoholic parents, mm-hmm. which was peculiar because my family was basically teetotalers and didn't make sense to me. And then I realized like there's a lot of commonality between children of chronic illness and children of alcoholism. Uh, and that's not completely a fair comparison. Of course, there's a lot of problems with that, but for the most part, like the idea of like, there's uncertainty, there's certain things that everyone has to like, um, like kind of function around. Like there is a, um, like a, a dysfunction, that like the whole family has to balance and to make the ship right. And like, uh, obviously again, it's not a fair comparison for many reasons, but the idea that like, that's the childhood that you grew up in. Um, and that I did like, yeah, that like that definitely does like does affect me. And they talk about in that book, like there's four different roles that children play, um, when they grow up in that environment. And one of those is like the star child, which is like, this is my story growing up. Like I have to be different. I have to be set apart. Like I have to be the one who does this thing and I have to be, Oh, I'm precocious and I get this. And in that way, like that was a lot of my identity growing up and and I had to rewrite that story for sure. And I continue to have to, and like a lot of ways, like one of the moves for, for me to, to grow was to find myself more in common with everyone than trying to identify myself as like a Pharisee, like the, the set apart people. And so, yeah, I mean, I, like I, I, give, I agree with the, the premise. I'm not trying to like say I disagree with it, but um, yeah, no, it's just the thing about memory is the thing I guess maybe I was most uh, uh, like concerned about because I think memory serves a purpose for us and it's not maybe accurate, but it's my memory. And so the actual veracity of our ability to recapture what took place is maybe less important than our ability to describe yeah. what the purpose is for our own story. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Maybe I could summarize it this way. That is it. It's what happened to you is less important than what you think happened to you. Yeah. Well said. Right. And so regardless of whether it happened precisely like that doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter. It's how you perceived it, particularly as a little person who didn't have the capacity to see the complexity of it all. And Mm -hmm. so Again, you know, we're kind of digging deep into sort of psychological theory here, but the, the, the truth of the matter is pretty simple, right? You built a broken story around false beliefs and internalized messages that you just articulated, 
right? I got to mm-hmm. be the star child. I, maybe I got to be the class clown. Maybe I got, you know what I'm saying? And it goes on and on and yep. on. I got to be the perfect Christian kid, whatever it is. And then you drag that story unconsciously into adulthood. How's it serving you now? Mm-hmm. It probably isn't. <laughs> Yeah, right? No, no, it's not so and, good. Yeah. In fact, it's probably making you miserable and making a few people around you miserable. Right? And so yeah. and so the journey then is, all right, I gotta see that, I gotta own it, I gotta wake up, and I have to rewrite that old story so that I can become healthy and integrated and become a truer um authentic version of who I actually am. Uh, it, it's, there's a, a great quote uh, in the book. It's not completely original, so I, d- I don't mind saying that it's great. Um, it, it's that, you know, <laughs> the question is, who were you before the world told you you had to be? Hmm. Yeah. So these are the kinds of questions that I raise in the book as you go along the journey of trying to become your true self. And, of course, we're talking about the seven story here, and that's the value of the Enneagram, right? Is it does a beautiful job of kind of saying, okay, well, here's the basics of your story, uh, at least the framework of your story. You'll have to fill it in. But, yeah. um, and here's the process for overcoming that old script that you've been reading off of. Yeah. You say in the book, uh, what separates the Enneagram from other personality typing systems is that it helps us craft and live a better, truer story than the one we've unconsciously settled for. And so for me, like as I learned the Enneagram, the idea that like for me, the ideal is to get to a place of sobriety where it's not like I'm always looking at my calendar. I'm always having to be off in the distance going somewhere over there on the other side of the rainbow. Things are going to be better off. Um, It's to go, no, I, I can be here. I can be present. And it, it also explains why there are people that I find myself connecting to that I didn't understand why I gravitate. Like you talked about Rob in the book, uh, when you talked about sevens and like Rob Bell has had a connection for a lot of people. But one of the things I, I realized, um, is like, I go back and I look at his books. And I'm like, Oh, like you're, you're talking about the things that all of us sevens are struggling with. Like he wrote a book, how to be here, which is one that probably not as many people connected to as others. But um, like I know as a seven, like that whole move to say like, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm present. I don't have to be anywhere else. Like that is sobriety for what a seven needs. And yeah. just the language and the frame of the Enneagram in some ways, like gives you a, like a, a game plan. Like it gives you a, a play call to go, okay, this is the end game where I need to get to for me to be who God created me to be. Yes. Now I would say that the journey for you to sobriety. Sobriety is one among many things that the seven has to work on, right? It's not Mm -hmm. simply that. Um, And, but that is a nice encompassing of a term, right? Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, um, we, we have to do our own work to figure out how we, you know, kind of embody our, our particular type in our own particular way. And then, this is deconstruction, dude. You're deconstructing your old story and reconstructing a new one, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and and in, in, in so doing, man, you, you find real freedom, right? You, you, yeah. feel, you feel like I'm just not imprisoned by... I'm, I'm no longer going to co-sign this BS. 
You know yeah. what I'm saying? I, I, I just I can't keep co-signing it because of what it's doing to my marriage, what it's doing to my own health, what it's doing to my friendships, what it's doing to my vocation. It's just, man, I, I just can't continue to do this. And, and then when you find that new story and you begin to really write it, and there's some very practical steps. I mean, exercises and practices that help people along in this journey. Um, you know, dude, if, if, if someone had written this book for me at 35, it would have been so helpful. It would have saved me a lot of time, right? Uh, yeah. it, the route would have been a, a, a more direct than circuitous. Uh, and, you know, that's, that was the motivation. And I have to tell you that in my work as a as a, an Episcopal priest, as a therapist, as a speaker, as an author, when I work with people around this idea of narrative, you think I invite, you think I had invented fire. Like the other, the other day or not the other day, but maybe two months ago, I, I was a, I was a therapist on a weekend for, um, 40 addicts. Okay. In recovery. And we, I had to lead six hours of group therapy a day for this, for five of these guys. And when mm-hmm. I, when I said to them, you know, I wonder if you all are living in a broken story, all right? Because they had all just shared their life story. And I said, I'm just wondering, is it possible you're in the wrong story? And they all leaned in. Their eyes got really big. And for the next three days, all the language was about, the, about story and narrative. It's like it opened up their eyes to say, oh, my gosh, the problem here." The reason for this behavior, the reason for all the problems I'm, I'm wrestling with is, is really based in my having bought into a false story. And it's natural that I would. It's normal that I would. I, I don't have to blame myself for it. I don't have to beat myself up for the things I've done to cope with a bad story. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, but, but the work here is seeing the story, owning the story, awakening to it. And then rewriting it. You know, that's the pattern in the story of you that I, I lay out for people to do. Yeah, it's super helpful. Uh, the book does a, a great job of, like, pointing in the direction of where you can do that yourself. But when you're talking with this group two weekends ago, and you said that, like, to say that you're living a wrong story, and it was like you invented fire for them. Why do you think that concept connected so much? What was so revelatory about that notion of story that cause such transformation for them? Great question. Because all of us think of our lives as an unfolding story. That is the lens through which people see their lives. This is why we say things to people like the cheesy pickup line. Hey, man, tell me your story. Or it's why we we say to people, uh, you know what? I'm turning the page on this chapter of my life. Or, you know what I mean? It's like everything is a story. Like there's a quote in the book from uh, the author Patrick Rothfuss. And he says, It's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head, always, all the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. So this is why this is so important. You have built your life out of that old story. Your identity is born. Your personality is born as a result of that broken story. And so the only way forward is out. Hmm. I think you're referencing this in the part of the book where you're talking about uh, uh, Mako giving you the uh, the, the broken 
a pot? Was it a pot or a bowl or something yeah, like that? It's, it's a, yeah, it was a 200, kintsugi? 200, yeah, kintsugi. It was a 200-year-old ceramic tea bowl. Yeah, and so Maka was on the podcast uh, a while ago, who I only know who he is because of you, by the way, so thank you for that. Um, but uh, then you had this quote, uh, I think this is from uh, Eugene O'Neill. It says this, man is born broken, he lives by mending, the grace of God mm. is glue. Mm. So we all have these broken stories, which lead to much dysfunction, to being enslaved, to being in captivity, even if we don't know that we are in the prison cell. But somehow the gospel, which the tool of the Enneagram can point us towards, can be the glue that brings us healing, which you know, for me looks one way, for others it looks different. But everyone like, has this ability to have this like, redemption because of this glue that God's grace can be for us if we become aware of the story. Yes. Is that right? And, yes. And if we give God consent to repair okay. us. Tell me more. Well, how do we have to give? You know, I, I, you've probably heard me say this before, but I think Christianity is not something you do as much as it is something that gets done to you. Yeah. And, and so we, we exert so much effort, man, to try and do what God wants to do for us. And mm-hmm. I think the only way, and, you know, obviously there are some practices historically that we've been given that few of us actually use to place ourselves in a posture where God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And, and, and what is it that God wants to do? He wants to take that, the broken ceramic bowl of our lives, take mm-hmm. the shards, put them back together and glue them with that golden uh, lacquer. Right. Mm-hmm. And and actually encourage us to not hide the scars and the brokenness, but to reveal the grace that has mended them, the beautiful grace that has mended them. And then, ironically, the bowl becomes more beautiful than it was prior to its breaking. That, to me, is the sum message of the gospel. That Kintsugi bowl, every time I look at it in my home, it's on a table in my living room. Every time I look at it, I go, yep, that's the gospel. That's my life. That's the gospel. Yeah. We talk about um, passions, like your, your, your vice, your sin, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you say your passion is the source of your suffering. And so these things that like, we naturally lean into, like for me, gluttony, like I naturally lean into it. it in the moment, it feels good. But in the end, like it is where I find suffering. Um, maybe the flip side of that is when we learn the story that God creates for us, like we find redemption and healing when we can lean into that instead of what comes naturally to us. And like, it seems like that like takes a lot of work to do that. And it takes a lot of ownership and counseling and you need people like Jack, the, you know, your sponsor who's, you know, 50 years older than you, but he can point you in that direction. You need resources like this book. We need, we need people and others like who come alongside of us to do this. If you're talking to someone who's going to read the book by themselves and which is a great first step, uh, but like, what's like the next step? Like, how, how do you invite others into this? What, what kind of resources do you need to surround yourself with to make this a flourishing um, like process for you? Yeah, actually, in the book, I, one of the things I encourage people to do is to write out their story. They don't have to be John Irving to do this because a lot of people are like, ah, crap, I don't want to do that. But it's like, you know what? It's like, get over it, man. Like, you know, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you'll, you'll find the work worthwhile. And not that difficult. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you're not yeah. sick and tired of being sick and tired of your old story, then put my book on your shelf and wait until the day you are ready to do it. 
You know what I mean? It's like, I, no pressure on yeah. my part. You know, if you're not ready, if you find the old story still working for you, all right, well, just keep going. You'll be back. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, that, you know, I encourage people to tell that story to some, a trusted other. You have to, it's very important in the spiritual life and in the psychological life that we come out of the shadows, right? That we come out of hiding, uh, mm-hmm. And that we we tell our story to to others. It's fascinating, you know. I've got two two communities, <clears throat> two groups of men that I meet with every week, uh, and uh, one is in a five guys from my recovery community, and we study a book together, and then another group doing a book together, not recovery guys, and in, during those things, those meetings, we end up inevitably it becomes about telling our story. And it becomes quite honest. It becomes rigorously honest in those meetings. They're very trusted companions on the journey. So community is everything on the healing journey. You know, uh, you can't do this work alone. That's not how any of us were built. We're just not, our inner architecture is not built to do this work alone. Part of it is done in solitude, but ultimately it comes to fruition in community. Yeah. Uh, scripture tells us from thousands of years ago that God said it is not good for man to be alone and nothing has changed since then. It's still no. not good for us to do this alone. No. And Mm-mm. we need other people who help us along the way. And uh, like the book's a great place to start and the way you point us to taking this and then pairing it with someone else, it almost makes like uh, like an ideal kind of, if you're in a book club, if you're in a small group, if you're in some sort of group, like this would be a great resource for you all to go through and then use this as a way to tell your story. Because like you said, like we're always like in the meaningful relationships that we have, that's not like the surface stuff, but the relationships where we experience transformation, like we know each other's story and we're always talking about the the narrative and the story that we find ourselves in because that's ultimately like where growth and maturity happens. And so the friends who are closest to me are always asking me about sobriety. And they're not like, obviously, I'm not talking about like... alcoholism sobriety i'm talking about like what it means for me to be present to be still to be here to not jump somewhere else and like we have to have those sort of relationships to get us there so uh the book's super helpful gives us a great resource to give us some language and some tools and get us going in the right direction and uh, i think it's gonna be really helpful for a lot of people uh speaking of other things you've written that are super helpful um jesus my father in the cia the story about love stooping, I feel like I should give you money every year because I probably tell that story once a year. Um, at what point can I just tell the story like it actually is my own story? Because I've been telling it for literally a decade. And at some point I'm going to say, you know, it was me. Uh, I was there. I sat on the lady's lap just like all the little kids. And then she said, what are they teaching you at ACU? Of course, you got love stoops. Like when can I start telling that story like it's my own with your blessing? Well, you know what? As a, I'm surprised that you as a pastor haven't already uh, <laughs> taken that story and, uh, you know, started to tell it as your own without attribution. That, that's, usually the pastor, that's usually the pastor's way, right? Um, so it's so, legal then. That's what I hear you saying. It's legal for me uh, to do that. Brother, you got my permission to, uh, okay. you know, take that story and do whatever you want with it. And, uh, you know, um, and let me ask you a question, by the way, because you Uh-oh. actually just said something. So... Do you have in your life uh, a community of people that are not members of your church and a community of people in which you don't have to be the default leader, right? Where you're just a worker among workers and that yeah. in, in which you can 
truly share the, the old story of your life and your hopes and desires for a new and better story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, that's where I met you the first time is you came to that group that I get together with every fall. There's a group of, you know, a dozen guys who are uh, most of us preachers around my age, like Josh Graves. Um, and that's that's the function of that group. I mean, it's group therapy. We get together once a year and do that. And then we get together uh, sporadically throughout the year doing other settings. But that I mean, that's functionally group therapy once a year in that sort of like intense setting. But I also have um, one or two other friends that kind of function in that same capacity in my life as well where it's, um, you know, unfortunately, like you talk about, like when you're a pastor, um, like in a lot of ways you're like cooking the meal, so you're not going to enjoy the meal like everyone else. And so you have to go somewhere else uh, to eat. And so, yeah, I've, that's been very intentional for me. I, I'm glad you asked that question because we all need to have that yeah. question asked of us. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a very unfortunate thing when I meet pastors or therapists or people in helping professions that don't have that because oftentimes they took those jobs to protect themselves against having to do the work by, by focusing all their energy on being experts and helping other people do that work. Hold on, say that again. You think most people went into counseling or helping industries like being a pastor as a way to shortcut their own yeah. work? Yeah, I mean, in part. I mean, let's just, let's just face something. Your, your, your call to ministry, uh, as you understand it, uh, is obviously legitimate, but it's not pure. Like you had other motives, right? You, We're all mixed bag. Yeah, like there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot in there. And uh, part of it may be just you trying to resolve unresolved dramas from the past. I mean, I did this, you know? Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's that star child stuff. Like if, mm-hmm. if I start preaching when I'm 18 years old and I'm still working this narrative that my identity is I have to be the star child to make things right at home, what better way to be a star child if you're in a religious community or like a religious family like mine than being the guy up front talking? I yeah. Mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've met more pastors who are unaware of the fact that, that the church congregation has become an extension of their old family of origin, and they're still trying to work out their junk now through a thousand people versus four. Yeah. I heard uh, Lauren Daigle say this, um, true freedom is allowing yourself to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, to be able to step back and go, you know what? I, like, I, I love my job. I put my f- full heart and soul into what I do. Like, I'm deeply committed. Like, my work ethic, I, I think it stands on its own to say that I really care about my work. But to step back and go, you know, it's okay. Like, if some people don't understand me. Like, they don't get what I'm doing. Or, like, this isn't exactly what they want. Like, that's fine because I, I can't let this become my own vehicle to work out my junk in front of, like, my congregation were to use them for that, you know? Yeah. I made the mistake of doing that for years. And, <laughs> and it, it really took, it took a big crash before I woke up. Huh. When you say it, it took a big crash. What took uh, a big crash? My, you, church, my, everything? You know, just my own ministry in that place. Uh, I mean, mm. I, I left uh, in, in a somewhat broken condition as a result of my own uh, unconscious, you know, behaviors and whatnot. I mean, it's just inevitable. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of inevitable. And, and actually I was blessed with, uh, a a degree of failure as I left that community. It was a blessing. It was a good thing. Um, why was it a good thing? Why was it a blessing? Well, you know, um, I had to face the truth 
of who I was with a lot of self-compassion and care. Um, and uh, as a result, you know, I think, I think the more we can bring unconscious, hurtful material, old stories into conscious awareness, the more we can do that, the healthier we can become. And the more we resist looking at the truth of our lives, the sicker we become. Uh, and so, you know, it was a, wasn't a bad thing. I mean, ultimately, it bore a lot of great fruit. You know, it gave birth to a couple of books. It, you know, it gave birth to a whole new chapter in my life uh, and, um, uh, and to a whole new story. Are you implying that failure is the best vehicle to become aware of our own brokenness? Well, it's more so than success. Well, well, it sure doesn't hurt. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it'll get you there a whole heck of a lot quicker than success will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and besides when you're a success, what's the motivation to change? It's already working. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's going for you for sure. Okay. Let me get you out of here. I want to read, uh, a prayer written by George Appleton. I think mm-hmm. you maybe close the book with it, uh, or you have it somewhere in there. Um, I'm not going to expect you to memorize it, so I'll, let me just read it, and then I want you to like tell me why this is a meaningful prayer to you. Prayer says, Give me a candle of the Spirit, O God, as I go down into the deep of my own being. Show me the hidden things. Take me down to the spring of my life, and tell me my nature and my name. Give me freedom to grow so that I may become my true self the fulfillment of the seed which you planted in me at my making. I'm sorry, but I... Hmm. Hmm. I find that terrifically moving. Hmm. Um, what a beautiful prayer. And actually, what a, what a great summary of what this journey is to be about. You know, to, to go down into the depths of who we are accompanied by God's light, to see the hidden things, um, and in the process, discover our, our, our name, our true name. I mean, I've dedicated my life to... Uh, doing uh, or walking that journey and and finding tremendous joy in uh, asking people to do the same uh, to accompany me as we do it together. Um, I don't. I find it interesting that I've just listening to you say that prayer that I feel so deeply, deeply moved by it, um, and I. I I hope that I hope that journey for everybody, and I think in the story of you, I hadn't really thought of this, but isn't that isn't that the way we all need to do this? Uh, yep. Amen. Well, Ian, let's uh, let's end on that. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability, and uh, the book, the story of you. Uh, it's great. Congratulations on uh, writing another great book. Thank you, man. Thank you.